1: So last year, last summer, I did something very uncharacteristic and very juvenile. <clears throat> Some of you are laughing because you shouldn't be surprised by that. So I actually, I bought a motorcycle last year. Don't get too excited. It's, for those of you who know motorcycles, it's a little 150, okay? So it's not quite like dumb and dumber little mini bike, but it is definitely on the smaller side of things. And had a little money squirreled away, and like, I can kind of make this happen. And I talked to Mandy about it, and I said, what do you think? She goes, okay, just don't do anything stupid. And I said, dear, I've got YouTube. Like, what could possibly go wrong? So my inner 14-year-old came out, and I bought this little thing. I've been riding it around for the last year, kind of learning stuff. And I did what you're supposed to do. I took the motorcycle safety course. I've been reading and learning, right? One of the things I learned, this is going somewhere, One of the things I learned as I was looking through all this literature and as you're trying to figure out how do you keep control of this two-wheeled thing as you're going down the highway, where you look is where you end up. It's kind of like one of these first rules of motorcycle riding is if you look at that ditch over there, you're going to end up in that ditch over there. So keep your eyes forward. I think that's true of our spiritual lives as well. Where you look... Is where you end up. It's hard to know where to look these days, isn't it? What news source do you believe? Fox? CNN? Neither? <laughs> what platform speaker do you take their words and go, yeah, I, I believe that? What data set do you believe? And if I look to them, where will I inevitably head? feel like we're all hurtling down the road at 70 miles an hour potentially pulled into a thousand and one different ditches. So first John chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. This is a little unfamiliar for most of us, but it is necessary for all of us. The content is not charming in first John chapter 2, but it is very critical. In a similarly conflictual, smoke-and-mirrors world, John writes to his first-century church to tell them that where you look is where you end up. And so our text this morning breaks up into two chunks. Here's where we're going. The first chunk, verses 15 through 17, first 10 minutes or so of our morning, John talks about what we love. What do we love? And then the second chunk where we're going to be in the last half of our time together, verses 18 through 27. John talks about who we are to look to. So taken as a whole, John wants us to understand that where you look is where you end up. So let's get right to it. First John chapter 2, follow along with me in verse 15. You can look on the screens behind me on your phone or in a copy of God's Word that you might have. Here's what John says. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John starts off with a command. Interestingly, he's a good chunk of the way into his letter, and this is the first command that we've seen from John, and it's a negative command. Up until now, John has been using contrasts to make his point that Christians are supposed to live differently in this world, right? You following along the last couple of weeks, John has said, look, God is light and the world is dark. Christians are supposed to go out into their world. The world hates each other. Christians love each other. And so John has these contrasts that he's been setting up. And as he's writing this as a pastor to this church, he's hoping that his readers and therefore us will kind of silently pick up on what he's doing and go, oh, wait, which one am I? Am I in the world or am I walking according to the spirit like God calls me to? Where do I fall? What does my life reveal about my heart? But in our text this morning, John doesn't do any contrast. He's not getting very image-heavy. He just jumps right in with a command. He says, don't love the world. And he uses that phrase, the world, six times in three verses. So what does he mean by the phrase, the world? Because here's the question, right? I thought God so loved the world. Last week, John said, go love other people, love people. That's how you're going to know that you follow Jesus. Do you love your enemies? So what's he mean by the world? Isn't this kind of double talk here? Don't love the world? John, what are we doing? So there's a couple options here. When the New Testament uses the phrase the world, it could mean at least three things. First, it could mean the physical world, okay, like the created matter of the cosmos, like trees and earth and sky and clouds and all that stuff, just the physical world. Second option is it could mean the people of the world. Okay, that is what Jesus means in John 3.16, by the way, where he says, God so loved the world. He's talking about people. Third option, because neither of those are what John means here. The third option is he could mean the world's system. The way the world naturally operates without God. This idea that the world on its own has a way of doing things that are against the way that God says. And so what John wants us to get is there's two lenses that you could drop in front of your eyes. Life according to the world and life according to God. And for John, here's the thing, you can't have both of them. You are going to look through one or the other. You can't have both. One says, hate your enemy, resist those who persecute you, And the other says, love your enemy and bless those who persecute you. They're polar opposites. One says, live for yourself. You only live once, so do what's best for you. The other says, live for God and do what's best for your neighbor. Very different. And these two lenses that are dropped over your eyes at different points in your life will affect everything that you see, everything that you look at, and everyone in your world will be colored by those lenses. And what John is saying is he goes, don't love how things look through this lens called the world. So, because he's a good pastor who cares for his flock, John then gives this church three incredible, helpful, practical ways to know when this lens has been dropped in front of their eyes. When you love the world, you see three things. And they're right there in the text. This is a sermon that just preaches itself. It's got three points. We just love this stuff as pastors, right? Here he says, he's got the desires of the flesh. Your translations might say the lust of the flesh. Desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Desires of the flesh, what is that? Have you ever wanted something so bad that like you thought you'd die if you couldn't get it? Like that desire somehow like gets into you and you're like, oh, I really, really, really want that. That's what he's talking about, desires of the flesh. And then he says desires of the eyes or the lusts of the eyes. Now, your mind might go right to sexual urges and imagery, and that's in view here, but it's bigger than that. He's talking about anything that you see out there that attaches itself to your heart in here. So they got the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and then he says the pride of life. The Greek word for life there literally means my livelihood my profession, everything that I'm about. It could mean my property or my estate. And when I take pride in what I have done, my notch on the world, John says, if you do that, you're missing it. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And for John, that's the world. Now, what do all those things have in common? Here's his point. There is no more surefire way to crowd out love for Christ than infatuation with the world. You wanna know when somebody who is in love with the world, they just don't love Jesus as much anymore. This is a heart thing, and when I build my life around what I feel, when I see something that I want, and when I seek satisfaction in my notch, what I have accomplished, resting in what I've I've done, and John's point here is, look, the world is sinking, it's passing away, and if you tie yourself to it, you're gonna go down too. He goes, I don't want that for you. So earlier this spring, I made a decision. I said, this is the year that I'm getting serious about my yard. Seriously, okay? I don't know where this desire came from. I think it must be like some middle-aged male thing. like. And all of a sudden, my grass, like, I care about it. I don't know where. I never used to. And it's like, okay, I guess I got to start caring about it. I think it's when you start referring to it as a lawn instead of a yard. Maybe that's, like, when you make the switch and cross over. But for whatever reason, I'm looking out there, and I'm like, that's patchy. It should not be there. Like, it should be greener. But here's the other side of this whole thing is we have neighbors through our backyard. I love them. We have tremendous neighbors. They're super hospitable. They're very kind to us. Like, we love them. We have a great relationship. Full-on confession, I am always envious of their yard, because their yard looks like a putting green at Augusta, and mine looks like a topographical map of Beirut. It's like, this should not look this way. And I kind of like stand on my deck, and I look out, and I'm like, how do they do that? What sorcery? And so here's what I did this year. I headed over to Ace Hardware. I got two bags of Scott's Turf Builder. You know what I'm talking Yeah, see, I saw some head nods. You know what I'm doing. And so, like, I'm an amateur meteorologist, like, waiting to pounce. Like, you got to wait for the dew, and then, like, it's going to rain that afternoon. And so I get out there with my Scotts broadcast spreader, and I know it says open the gate to three and a half. Let's open it to four and a half. Like, let's open those gates, live dangerously. Let's go. And so I'm out there. There's these white clouds of fertilizer behind me, following me around the yard, So I wait a couple of days, I'm standing out on my deck earlier this week, sipping my sweet tea and surveying my half acre estate like a feudal English lord. And I'm going, my grass is greener than their grass. (laughs) I won. Like, what kind of insanity is that? Like, I love these people. Why am I, like, in some unspoken competition with them? What is that? Most of us spend our lives and our energy and our influence chasing greener grass, all at great cost to ourselves, don't we? And my neighbors know and I know and you know that come mid-August, we're all going to be in the same brown, patchy, crunchy situation anyway. And so John wants us to understand here. There's no more surefire way to crowd out love for Christ than infatuation with the world. Now, does that mean you can't have green grass and care for your lawn? No, of course. Have at it. Does that mean that you can't enjoy your job or your family or take vacations? No, of course that's not what he's talking about. Does that mean you can't hang a flag or celebrate national holidays? No, have at it. But what John wants us to understand here, as a Christian, don't be surprised when none of those things actually satisfy you. You can't count on green grass for your validation. You can't count on your job for provision. Your hope is not in a president named whoever, but a king named Jesus. Period. End of story. John is calling us to do the harder work of looking past all those temporal pleasures, wonderful though you may esteem them to be. And when we look past them to see a Savior named Jesus who is able to actually satisfy our deepest need. No matter what your dinner tastes like, how many fireworks you shoot off, or what your yard might appear to be. Humanity's greatest need is reconciliation with the holy God, and only Jesus can handle that. But the real power in what John is saying here isn't really in all of that. The real power is in his very first word. He says, don't love the world. That's interesting to me. Why did he say love? Why not Don't act the way the world acts. Don't do the things the world does. Don't think like the world thinks. Why does he go after my heart? Why does he go after my affections? It's a little harder. John understands something that most of us blow right past. He understands that the issue isn't how I act. The issue is what I love. Here's a question for you do you know why you sin? Think about this. This is going to get really, really narrow for a second. Why do I sin? Like, whatever your sin is, do you know why you sin? Because I love it. (laughs) It's not a confession, although, possibly. And you do too. What's my real problem? Am I a sinner because I sin? Or do I sin because I am a sinner? You see the difference in that? Is the problem out here or is the problem in here? If my greatest problem is just that I sin, like my action, what comes out of me, what I do, then the solution to the problem is to curb my behavior, change my ways, act right, and then I'm good, right? Maybe get some accountability partners, remove opportunity to sin for bad behavior, pepper in a little bit of like religious guilt and shame. Some of you know what that's like. And if I can get through all of that, then I can get through life. And some of you have come from church traditions that teach that. Fix the outside first, and then the inside will follow. That's a lie. Why? Because I don't need Jesus for that. I just need to ratchet down my efforts and become a better person. Jesus never changes anybody from the outside in, but always from the inside out. Jesus understands that I could have all the good behavior in the world and it doesn't matter. I could go to church every Sunday of my life secretly hating every minute of it. I could be a faithful husband to Mandy for our entire, ma- our entire marriage, kind of like secretly lusting over here on the side. I can be the model father for our kids all the while like wishing I could be free from the pressures of parenting. The outside could look stellar, but until my heart is right, I am wrong. Jesus talked about this. He said that people who pursue this kind of spirituality are like a perfectly varnished casket. Outside, impressive. Inside, yuck. He said they're like that coffee mug that has been sitting in your sink so long it's got mold growing inside of it. He goes, you don't want to drink out of that (laughs) because inside it's gross. The gospel truth is none of us need an external change. We need a total change When you read the gospel, the gospel never describes me in terms of my behavior, does it? It uses this darker, deeper, more evocative imagery. I am not a bad man in need of reform. I'm not a dirty man in need of a good cleanup. I am a dead man in need of new life. Do you see the difference? And no matter of carrot dangling in front of me, whip cracking over me, or stick prodding behind me can make a dead man live. My greatest problem is the fact that I sin, but that I am a sinner. I love to sin. It's fun. It feels great. Again, not a confession, but you're in the same boat. Because if the problem starts in here, the solution can't be out here. Brandon, just be good. And this is why the Christian message is so different from moral reform. Jesus didn't die so that you could behave. He died so that you could be new. That is a very different lens, and this is why John speaks up in the way that he does. He says that new life shows itself in new affections. Either I love the world or I love the things of God. That's how I know I'm converted when my heart changes, and that's the crux behind his word choice here. This isn't some, like, monkish, stoic detachment where he just wants you to go move to a mountaintop and contemplate your navel for the rest of your life. He's like, no, 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 no. Look at your heart. It's an invitation for introspection. Do I love the things that I'm called to love? If not, the love of the Father may not be in me if I'm still chasing this stuff. Hmm. So, how do you get your heart right? Maybe your first step is just to go, Jesus, I'm in love with the world and I want to break up. Help me break up with it. Maybe that's your first step. I've got stuff, and I love it. Got really rich 401k, and I'm counting on it. God, help me break up with that. Take my heart. Don't change my behavior, change me. Get desperate. So that's John's first point here. What you love matters, and where you look is where you inevitably end up. So, That's this first chunk. Now, having encouraged this church to tend to their affections, John switches gears for a bit. He moves from an encouragement to a warning, and he's about to offer some of the most unsettling words in this entire book, certainly some of the most unsettling words in the entire New Testament. Take a look in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as some of you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are not of us. Now, really quick aside before we move on. That's not talking about believers who leave a church for another church. Okay? Seriously, I've heard pastors use that verse way out of context. That is an abuse of spiritual authority. Okay? That's not what he's talking about here. So just to clear that up. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And here's where he gets specific. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life, praise God. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught to you Abide in Him. So we started off with a negative command, don't love the world, and we're ended here with a positive command, abide in Him. And we're going to get to that word abide in a few minutes because if you're like me, as you're cruising along, there is something that demands a little bit more immediate attention. There's a little bit of something spicy in there. You're going, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, what is, what's that word Antichrist mean? Didn't know we were talking about that this morning. Happy 4th of July. We're in a tiki hut and now we're talking about the Antichrist. This is the weirdest Sunday of your year, I promise you. When you read that, like little alarms start going off in your head and you may imagine like these end times dramas on TV with like political intrigue and, you know, heavy religious overtones. So I want to pull off to the side of the road here for a minute and I want to address this topic because it is necessary to see This, to see this wide-angle panorama of what John is talking about here. So, this subject belongs to this rarely visited corner of the library that theologians call eschatology, or a study of the end times, or like a word about what's to come. Now, here's the thing. The New Testament talks about some elements of end times really clearly. And there's some things about eschatology that are a little bit hazy in the New Testament, intentionally. And so any discussion about eschatology needs to live in this delicate, intentional balance. Where God's word is clear, we should stand confidently. And where God's word is intentionally unclear, we should still stand, but we should stand very graciously. So a good interpretive principle here is to keep the main thing the main thing. Theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul put it like this. He says, I find it dangerous to shout where God has whispered. A very good idea. I find it dangerous to shout where God has whispered. And I would add, I also find it equally dangerous to whisper where God has shouted. So, I think that principle should inform how we talk about this. Because I know a lot of Christians who, like, kick open the door To end times discussion, demanding answers to questions that the New Testament doesn't even ask. Things like, well, when is all this going to happen? I need a timeline. Let's go. Not that specific. I want to know every political leader who's involved in this thing. What's the United States' role in this business? Like, is this political, economic, spiritual? Like, what are we talking about here? The New Testament whispers on some of those areas, and so we should be very careful not to shout. However, there are some questions that the New Testament speaks very clearly to. How can we know that Jesus is going to be victorious? God's word shouts on that one. What can I do to prepare for what God is doing? Also, God's word's pretty clear about that. Even if I don't have all the details to heaven, what gets me there? God's word's clear about that. So, we should let God's word inform our concern rather than our own curiosity. So, last word, and then we're going to get to what this actually means. Practically for us, there probably is not a more anxiety-inducing question Then, how can I prepare for something I can't control? I think that's just true of a lot of things in life. I think it's definitely true of end times study, and it's why people latch onto this so bad. How can I prepare for something that I can't control? I believe that theological clarity brings spiritual certainty. And so the clearer we can become as God's word is clear the more certain we'll be about what God's will is for us. So what we're going to do in the next few minutes is we're going to build a very basic, very basic, biblical theology about who this person called Antichrist is and what they're about. We're going to look at a couple of scriptures. There's going to be a lot more on the screen, so if you're taking notes, just dust off your pen because here you go. There's a lot coming at you. But I think this is going to give us some helpful insight. So you should know first that John is the only New Testament writer that actually uses the term Antichrist. Shows up in 1 John, 2 John, and also in the book of Revelation. But other writers, Paul, Matthew, and Mark, citing Jesus, talk about this same principle, the same idea. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple of biblical texts and then draw some conclusions. So, if you want to do this for your personal study, take them home, have at it. First point of conclusion that we need to make, though. Number one. The spirit of lawlessness will be embodied in a man of lawlessness. And there's some scripture references that you can take a look at. What John talks about here is he says, there's an antichrist. Actually, there's many antichrists. And then there's another antichrist. And you're like, okay, John, what do I do about that? What are you talking about? Here's what he means. There is a spirit of lawlessness already at work in our world. And it has been forever. The spirit of lawlessness, this like shirking of authority, like I'm the boss of me, don't tell me what to do. You feel that in our world, don't you? We've always felt that. That's not new. And What John wants us to understand is this spirit of lawlessness already at work will be perfectly embodied in a man of lawlessness who takes all of that spirit, all of that functional anarchy in himself. And so is the, spirit, is the Antichrist a spirit, a group of people, or a person? Yes, all three of those things. Second point, in exalting himself, Antichrist directly opposes God. This is an important saying. It kind of embedded in the word Antichrist, so against or counterfeit. So I want to read this one to you. This is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Here's what Paul says. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So whenever anyone or anything takes a place that is reserved for God, I don't care if it's Antichrist or a Snickers bar, that is idolatry. And John says... This person is directly opposed to the things of God. This is someone who claims to have done great things because they are great. There is no room for glorifying God. This is a person who 100% says, look at me, I will take care of you and do everything. You have no need of this God. Sounds really spooky, huh? This is a person who eventually will almost build up a cult-like following. Which leads to the third point. This person will gain impressive, almost miraculous influence. It's interesting to me how every time God does something, especially Jesus will do something in the Gospels, the devil does like a little counterpoint. Right? So even in the garden, right, with Adam and Eve, did God really say, here, just do what I tell you to do, Adam and Eve. With Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, like, just, just do what I tell you to do, everything's going to be okay, Jesus, come on. So what you have here is this point-counterpoint. You have Christ saying one thing, this person saying something else, all the while trying to convince you that he is worthy of your trust. This person will leverage his ability over God's ability and will develop a cult-like following. This kind of gets a little scary, doesn't it? Point number four. His agenda will be to deceive believers and lead them away from Jesus. We should think about this person like a spiritual magician, kind of like spiritual sleight of hand, saying, I'm going to try to do some things that will be kind of magical, and they're actually going to try to convince you not to put your trust in Jesus, but put your trust in me. John talks about that. He says, I am writing to tell you about those who are going to try to deceive you and then Jesus, actually, he, he talks about this. I want to read this one for you, too. This is in Matthew chapter 24. Here's what he says. Jesus answered them, and he said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Gosh, that a good word for our day, isn't it? See that you're not alarmed. <laughs> For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then here's how Jesus ends this point. Listen very carefully. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Why does Jesus say birth pains and not death throes? Because something greater is coming. Birth pains, not death throes. Especially if you know him, This isn't the end of something. This is the beginning of something. And that's point number five. He has absolutely no chance of victory. Absolutely no chance of victory. This past February, we talked, we had a five-week teaching series uh, where we called Not Today Satan, where we basically said that the first rule of spiritual warfare is to know that the victory is already over. And so point number five, he has no chance of victory. There's nothing he can do. The victory is secured. It's already won. Jesus has conquered. There's nothing you need to fear. This is a very important point. So with that said, it's a very rough sketch. Let's get back to the highway. Back to what John wants this church to understand. Why does all this matter? Why do we even need a rough understanding of Antichrist? The word shows up in one word kind of toward the tail end of what John's talking about. There's one word, one idea, one command that John wants us to get to. He mentions it five times in the last four verses. It's a word, interestingly, that John lifts from Jesus' conversation right after the Last Supper, 60 years earlier in that upper room. He lifts it, and he brings it up here. Did you catch the word? It starts with A, abide. This is this one word that gives Christians then and Christians now hope in a dark world. Abide in him. What does that mean? It means to stay close to, to remain with, to cling to, to have hope in, to not be separated from. Here's the principle. In a spiritually counterfeit world, knowing the truth is priceless. In a spiritually counterfeit world, knowing the truth is, is priceless, And so if you have to wrap your arms around everything that John is saying in this last section, here's a quick summary. When you look to Christ, you have everything you need. That is a mind-boggling statement in his world. When you look to Christ, you have everything you need. And that's the thing, isn't it? In our current critical cultural shift, this crossroads that we feel In our world, if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Do you believe that? Seriously, don't be quick to answer yes. Do you really believe that? I'm not just talking about heaven, like when you stop breathing one day. I'm talking about life. Do you believe that Jesus is sufficient for your life? Think on that. Don't rush to say yes. I'm convinced that courageous Christians are people who live and love like Jesus is enough because he absolutely is. Christians in 21st century America are defined by what we don't need just by as much as what we do need. What's that mean? Spending time and energy and influence debating worldly issues like politics and theories and positions. Guys, that is like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And John goes, guys, no. Look beyond that. You've heard me talk this way before, and I I feel like I, I can be personal with you. I am legitimately not worried about the world that my children are heading into, and nor should you be. Yes, this is the last hour. Like, yes, our culture is moving away from the things of Christ. But if we have him you really believe he's enough really or do we need something else do we need a culture that is more sympathetic to the things of Jesus because John in the first century man they're stringing up Christians and John goes he's enough he really is but you got to abide in him he's enough do you believe that Jesus is enough for you to spiritually flourish I think we need to get back to this like first century house church thing for a second. If you just had Jesus, His Word, and His people in whatever form that looked like, is that enough for you to spiritually flourish? We've got to think that way. I'm not trying to scare you, but you can read the writing on the wall, can you? If your tithes are no longer tax deductible, will I still give? There's all of a sudden attacks on church property. If your pastors have to be bivocational, right? Are you still committed to your model of church? Are you still committed to Jesus? Which matters more? And John says, if you got him, it's all you need. It's all these people had. Practically, though, a Christian's plan for the future starts. By grounding ourselves in the unshakable hope of Christ, not the fear of evil. Because here's what happens when we talk about this kind of stuff. You'll read the book of 1 John. You'll come across those words. You'll read the book of Revelation. And we get so freaked out. And then we spend all of our energy trying to shore up all of our questions that we don't have answers to. Like, when is this going to happen? What's going to happen to my wife and my kids and my grandkids and my neighbor and my world? That's giving evil too much power. A Christ-centered eschatology doesn't start with what man can do to you. It starts with what Christ has done for you. That's the driving factor, and that's the unshakable hope. What you look to is where you will inevitably go. And John's sitting here saying, abide in him Nothing else matters. In our world, it's the most essential, most valuable, most critical relationship that you can have is with Jesus, the King of Kings. Where you look is where you end up. So we're going to transition to celebrate communion here in just a little bit. And so I want to let you guys know you should have gotten some packets on the tables as you came in and uh, if you didn't, that's okay. You can head back in uh, these moments and just grab one for you or with somebody around you. For thousands of years, God's people looked to Passover because of what Passover represents. God's people celebrate this meal, happens every year, usually in early April, when they celebrate the fact that God passed over them when he saw the shed blood of a lamb on a doorpost literally passed over them. That's why they get this word Passover. But Passover in 33 AD, that was a different one. In that Passover, 12 men and a Jewish rabbi named Jesus gathered together in a rented room in a crowded city, and Jesus said some amazing things. I want to read to you actually what he said as the band is getting ready. Here's what Jesus said at this Passover. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Feel that one? (laughs) Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's what I want us to do. This is a whole lot more than just bread and grape juice. You know that. Pastor Micah slipped it in there very casually earlier, and I want to return to it. He said, let this be a time where we declare our dependence on God. And so as you take this bread and take this juice on your own, just in these few moments, and yes, there's going to be the little tearing of the top, and everyone's going to go, that's weird. (laughs) Let this be a time where you sit and ask yourself that question. Do I believe that you're enough, Jesus? And if you don't, don't take it. Seriously, no one's going to look at you funny. Let this be a time where you can renew yourself and go, okay, Lord, I do believe you are enough and I'm declaring that I'm completely dependent upon you. You are my one defense and you are my righteousness. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, I just feel so connected to these centuries of believers who have gone before us, people who have said the name of Jesus and have found great hope. And so in these moments, God, would you guide us Protect us, affirm us. We are thankful for the hope of Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Don't ever let this become too familiar for us, please. Father, we love you. Bless us in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when you're ready, go ahead and take the bread and then take the juice. And after a few moments of quiet, Pastor Micah and the team will lead us in worship.
0: Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.